if-then statements are used in the English language as a way of reasoning and instructing. And uh, parents use them to instruct their children. They do it all the time. If you touch the stovetop, then your hand will get burned. And we try to warn our children. Uh, Sometimes there are uh, if-then statements that become popular. They're worded in a clever way. And uh, they become uh, proverbial so that most people can remember them. And so if I say the beginning of this, you'll probably be able to say the end of it. If at first you don't succeed, then try again. That's right. You know, we use humor in them. And uh, like the comedian uh, Stephen Wright used to say, if at first you don't succeed, then skydiving is not for you. (laughs) Catherine Arad wrote, if you can't be a good example, then you'll just have to be a horrible warning. Well, if-then statements not only make us laugh, but they also bring conviction. That really motivates us. John Lewis wrote, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? A call to action. Yeah. The Apostle Paul used if-then statements uh, to help reason with people about the gospel. He said, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then our faith is futile. But Christ has indeed been raised, and if he has been raised, then we should pay attention to everything he said. So this, in general, is how if-then statements work. But we've been talking about the God of promise for the past uh, couple of Sundays, and this is our final Sunday, and talking about the types of promises. We, at first, we talk about God's covenant promise, which is uh, a very different, uh, very unique We talked uh, uh, last week about taking shelter in God's promises, that there's a choice in that. And this week, we want to talk about some of the if-then statements from God that are guaranteed because He said it. And because He said it, it's going to be done. They are promises from Scripture. They're different from covenants because God is not making an oath with these statements. Uh, and he's not uh, enacting any kind of blood sacrifice with them, but he's just telling us, hey, this is how the reality of things work in the spiritual realm. If you do this, then this will result. And we can guarantee that that is the way it will work. The problem that Americans seem to have is that we desire the then part of the promise, but we don't want anything to do with the if part of it, the condition part of it. You know, back in the 80s and the early 90s, there was an ad campaign that was done by Nike, and uh, there were three words that were used, and they were spoken and printed everywhere with their logo and uh, motivational images uh, attached to those words. And there was a big Nike swoosh, and then there were three words in white print on black behind it, and what did they say? That's right. Well, they can just be thankful that their ad campaign did well. You remember that after all these years. Well, uh, there's a similar uh, thing. And and what they meant by that, basically, for those of you who are not of that generation, uh, it was basically saying to athletes of every sport and every age that if you want to win, then train. Just do it. That That was the thought behind it. Now, Today, I have four words for you that express the same sort of thing concerning these if-then promises of God. And the four words are a reminder to us that we can't have the benefit of the promise without acting on or doing the condition, the if part of the promise. 
The four words come from a, a small little sub-story in the big story of God during the time of kings when God was revealing his faithfulness despite human rejection of his authority and our whole tendency to do what is right in our own eyes. And during this time, uh, it happens to fall in, in the book of 2 Kings. So if you have a Bible, hard copy or digital, turn to 2 Kings and flip to the middle of your Bible. If you're not familiar with the Bible, flip to the middle. It usually follows open to Psalms. Start going to the left past Job, Esther, Nehemiah, Ezra, First and Second Chronicles, and then you'll get to First and Second Kings. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. Put your finger there and let me catch you up on what's happening in this little episode of the story of God. It's at this time, uh, King David, he's dead and gone. A lot of kings have come and gone after him, but the covenant promise is still out there. One day, God is going to send a king who's going to sit on David's throne forever. And to sit on a throne forever, you can't be a normal human being. Eternity is not something, eternal, immortal, immortality is not something that's normal to our human condition. So uh, people know that this future king is going to be different. Um, so in the meantime, humans are realizing, as they're looking at human kings, that human kings aren't as good as having God as their king leading them. Now, there are a few kings in, in the history, in the in, uh, first and second kings and the chronicles, there are a few kings that were good kings and faithful to God like David. But the majority of the kings were unfaithful and wicked, and they led the people in their wickedness. And during these times, God started sending prophets, human messengers, to warn the people and the kings to turn back to God. They're going one way. The prophets say, you need to turn around and return to God. Go a different direction. And at this point in 2 Kings, there was a prophet that lived, and his name was Elisha. And he had started doing some miraculous things by the power of God. And people knew something was up with this man. He would speak to animals, and they would protect him from a gang of hoodlums. He takes 20 loaves of bread, and he feeds 100 men with them. And then he raises someone from the dead. That is just your out-of-ordinary kind of things going on around this guy. And so the word is out, Elisha is a prophet of God. You need to pay attention to him. Now, at the same time that this is going on in Israel and the Samaria region, in a neighboring country, there in, in Syria, or what was called Aram at the time, there is a commander of the Syrian army named Naaman. And he is a valiant soldier. He's brave. He's been through many battles and had a victory every time, won for his nation. And he has become the right-hand man of the king of Syria. He's trusted and he's highly regarded by everyone in the kingdom. He was a big man in the kingdom of Aram. And he was a big shot. When he wore his decoration, decorated uniform, he had ribbons and buttons and medals all over it. Now, if you guys remember back in your history a little bit, uh, in the first Gulf War, there was a, a, a military general in, during that time that everybody knew about in America. He was popular and he was loved. Uh, very different from uh, things that are going on today. Uh, and his name was uh, Norman Schwarzkopf. And everyone called him Stormin' Norman. And uh, that was his nickname. Well, you can kind of think of Naaman in the same way. If you were living in Syria, you would know who Naaman was. He was beloved, and maybe it wasn't Storm and Norman, but maybe it was Raging Naaman, something like that. And so uh, there was one thing, though, about Naaman that was going against him. 
and sometimes it was whispered about behind his back. It so happened, and I imagine this, this isn't described in the Bible, but I imagine that one day, coming home from battle, taking off his armor, standing in front of the mirror, he looks and sees, and there was a spot on his chest. And this dread, this tendril of dread goes and grips his heart because he knows exactly what that spot is on his chest. It is leprosy. And leprosy at that time ruined a person's life. It deteriorated their life. It was a death sentence. Naaman had leprosy. And there's not a doctor in Syria who can help him. It it was a deterioration of the nerves and the loss of feeling in your extremities uh, and your limbs. And as it progressed, your skin would turn white and gray and flaky. And people afflicted with it would often wound themselves because they had no feeling. And, you know, they're chopping up the vegetables for the the tomato soup, and they accidentally cut their finger. And then those wounds would not easily heal because of their condition. And so they had a hard time, and they'd get infected. And it was a horrible disease, and there was no cure. And there must have been some moments where Naaman would come home victorious from a battle, having the admiration of his men, but then sensing people pulling away from him as they looked at him, and they saw the spreading of his leprosy. He had everything, but it's like he had nothing with this leprosy. If he could just get rid of this cursed leprosy. And I'm sure there were some moments when he came home frustrated and talked about it with his wife. Well, during one of these conversations, there was a captive Israeli girl who served as Naaman's, served as Naaman's, Naaman's wife uh, served as, as her mis- uh, servant. And she overheard uh, one of these conversations. And the girl tells her mistress, she says, if only Naaman would go to Israel and find the prophet Elisha, he would be cured of his leprosy. Well, that's all the encouragement Naaman needs. I mean, he's, he's seen every doctor, so he's ready to go. He goes to the king, he gets permission to go, and he grabs a whole entourage of people to come with him. When they're horsemen and chariots and servant men, and they go tearing into Israel, terrify the king of Israel, who at that time is subject to Aram, and uh, it causes a big stir. And the, and the, and the king of Israel is intimidated uh, and, uh, and is wondering what to do. And he's like, am I God? Who, how can I cure you of your leprosy? Well, prophet Elisha knows that Naaman has arrived, calls for Naaman to come to his house. So Naaman and his big entourage get into the chariots and horsemen. They ride and roar up to uh, Elisha's house. Now, Elisha, I kind of wonder about Elisha. Sometimes he kind of appears uh, kind of aloof, kind of distant from people and his conversations. And I, I kind of wonder, you know, if he's just kind of one of these hippie types and, uh, you know, kind of organic gardener out living out in the woods and calls his little junior prophets to them and they have some, you know, prophet training time. And, and uh, but he lives in this little gray shack up in the hills, kind of the, the prophet's parsonage up, on the, up there. And, and uh, he does his gardening and just minds his own business till God tells him what he's supposed to do. Well, Naaman and his entourage come tearing up in front of the door of Elisha's house. And before they even climb down from their horses, climb down from his chariot, Elisha's servant comes out and says to Naaman and gives him instructions for his healing. He says, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. Now, some of you are probably familiar with this story. What happens when Naaman hears this from this messenger boy. He gets mad. He gets put off. 
He is furious. He is fuming. He's, he's, he's thinking to himself, the very idea. Why didn't this prophet come out and greet, greet me himself? And, and he's, uh, you know, thinking, well, he should have come out and, and done something. should have waved his hand around and said, be healed. And, 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 and none of that happens. And Naaman starts complaining about the Jordan River in comparison of the beautiful rivers back home in Syria. And he goes storming off and, and he's fuming. And his servants and his horsemen are all standing there going, what? And so one of them is, is brave enough to go and talk to him. Now, you, now you might kind of wonder, what, what's going on here? I mean... The deal is, is Naaman is a big man, and he's got a big imagination. And he imagined just a little more flourish than what happened here. I mean, he was imagining a little, a little Steven Spielberg effects going on here. He, he saw the clouds rolling in, the lightning flashing. He, he imagined getting down to meet the mighty prophet, you know, and Elisha standing there, you know, made with his beard blowing in the wind, you know. And, and, and he imagined, you know, an amazing story to unfold so that when he went back to Syria, all his entourage would talk and retell it over and over. You know, maybe Elisha lifting up his hand and waving around and, and shouting out something like, Leprosy be gone! Poof! But instead, Naaman is not even properly greeted with the respect that he's used to. He doesn't even meet the prophet, and now he's being instructed by some servant boy to go wash in the little muddy Jordan River that looks like a creek. You see, Naaman had an ideal of how he was going to be healed. He, he desired healing. He made the long trip. He saw the right person, but he had in his mind of how he was going to gain that healing, and it wasn't going how he imagined if he was just to go take a bath, why didn't he just go home and take it? Why go wash seven times in the Jordan River? Well, one of Naaman's servants gets some courage and goes up to him while he's fuming, and, and he tries to talk some sense to Naaman. And, and he says to him, you know, sir, if, if the prophet would have asked something really big of you to do, you would have done it, right? Well, yes, I would have. You know, well, why don't you go and do this little thing? I can just picture Naaman just kicking the dirt and, all right, I'm going to do it, you know, kind of grumbling under his breath. At least he could have done was come out and greet me and gets back to his chariot and, you know, tries to regain some of that commanding presence and he gets back in his chariot and, to the Jordan, you know, and they all tear off in their chariots and their horses and they go down to the Jordan River they get down to the bank. He climbs down after his chariot. He starts taking off his armor and, you know, turn your backs. Yes, sir. And, you know, and, and again, he's just kind of grumpy and mad and walks down into the river. And he goes down in there. And what happens? Some of you know this part of the story. He dips down there seven times. Seven times he goes down and he comes up. And on that seventh time, he dips down into the water and he comes up out of the water, and his leprosy is gone. His skin is like a baby's skin. And that's the story of Naaman. I mean, there's a few other things. You can read it for yourself if you like. But I got a question for you. Which dip do you think was the most important dip? Seventh dip, first dip, 
All of them? Yeah, well, you know, some people say the first, some might say the seventh, but, you know, the seventh dip kind of was a big dip, wasn't it? I mean, as far as dips go, right? I mean, dip number six, you still got leprosy. Dip number seven, you go down with leprosy, but you come up and it's gone. I mean, dip number seven, you go down unclean and you come up clean. Dip number seven, you go down sick and you come up well. So I would have to say that dip number seven is certainly marvelous, miraculous, and an impressive dip as far as dips go. But answer this question. What came before dip number seven? It was dip number six. Yeah. Now, if there had not been dip number six, would there have been a dip number seven? Now, I really know that this is getting really deep and theological, but, but there wouldn't have been, all right? Would there have been a dip six if there hadn't been a dip five? No. No, there wouldn't have been. And preceding five was dips one through four, right? Every dip was a part of the program. It was part of the plan God was doing. The seventh dip was pretty amazing, but I wonder what dips one through six were like. I wonder what they were like. I suspect that they were just kind of dippy. I imagine dip one, you know, Naaman, he's still kind of frustrated, mad, still kind of regaining his composure. He wades down into the water, is about waist deep, and he's getting into it, and, and it's, it's all muddy along the banks, and the mud is like up to his knees, and it's just starting to suck his sandals off. And he's going, I'm going to lose a sandal. And, and I think that was probably dip number one. Go down, go up. That was the only memorable thing about it. I've almost lost my sandal. So dip number two, you know, he, he goes down and imagine he comes up and he's got leaves hanging on him. And he's going, ooh, I'm going to get more infected from being in this river. This is gross. So dip number two is a bit of a bummer of a dip. I imagine him going down for dip number three and, and something brush up against his leg down in the river. He said, ah, what's that? And, you know, it's probably a fish or a stick or something, but he gets a little scared on dip number three. And then he goes down for dip number four. And, and I imagine he's about chest deep in the water now. He's starting to, you know, get into this. And I imagine he comes up out of the water, dip four, and there's something dead that floats by. You know, the Bible doesn't say this, but, you know, maybe the Lord said, dead raccoon, float by. <laughs> you know, Naaman's going, yuck. But the power is not in the water. The, it, it's something that the Lord has going on here. And I imagine dip number five just being a boring dip. I mean, nothing happens, down and up. And when it's, when it's time for the sixth dip, I imagine Naaman is feeling kind of foolish. I, I think he's saying to himself, this is stupid. What am I doing? I'm a grown man. I have money. I have servants. I have power. And I'm sitting here dipping up and down in the river. I have never seen medicine like this before. And I've done it for five times. I should just go home. But then he thinks, well, no. He said seven. So he goes down a sixth time and nothing. And after the sixth dip, I can imagine he's just kind of disgusted and starts to move out of the water thinking, what's the use? I've tried everything, and this is just one more thing I've tried, and it just doesn't work. But as he's starting to move out of the water, he thinks, well, I've done it six times. I might as well do it the seventh time. And he goes down for that seventh dip. And when he comes back up out of the water, he is 
clean. There is, his, his skin is new. It's like it's, it's a fresh skin he's been given. It's gone. And one dip was exciting. The other dips were not exciting. But they were all part of the plan. Now here are my four words for you today. Take the seventh dip. Don't cut short. Don't stop early. Go all the way. Take all of them. Take it to the seventh dip. Now, for each of us, there has been given these if-then promises of God. And I think we all want to experience the seventh dip of the promise. I mean, when we read something like, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. When we read that kind of if-then statement from God, I think a lot of us are real excited about the then of that promise. We want the seventh dip. We want the exciting part. We want the prosperous and successful. Those are good things when we have a biblical definition of those things. But don't forget dips one through six. They got to happen first. Don't let the Word of God depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. You know, it seems like maybe doing that is going to suck your sandals right off of you. But you're just on dip number one. It might be boring on dip number five, but don't forget the seventh dip is coming. Now, no, I, just a little note on this. You know, the, the scripture I use, for example, says that, that the same word used in the Old Testament, God used with Joseph. He said he, got, he gave Joseph success. You know when he gave it to him? When he was in prison. So just know that um, the, the reward of a promise may not always be like you imagine. It may not be like you imagine, Naaman. God fulfills his if-then promises just as he fulfills his new covenant. He's faithful. But God doesn't always cater to our imaginations. God doesn't always bring in the rolling clouds, the lightning and the thunder, and the beard blowing in the wind. A prophet calling on God in a dramatic fashion. God might fulfill his if-then statement with a muddy little river. He might do that with you that way. Sometimes the if of the if-then promise requires something of you like it required of Naaman. It might require humility. Someone might say, I want to be near God. And God gives his if-then promise. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your hearts. You know, it might take some effort on dips one through six to stay in the water. You might get leaves on you. The fish might bite. But if you really want the seventh dip, the miraculous, exciting, then you're going to have to seek him with all your heart, not just part of it. Another note on that example. God does seek after His lost sheep. But those who are already found, those who are already in the family, they're expected to heed the shepherd's voice. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will lift you up. You know, I'm really happy. I'm really happy when people want to test God's promises. Because I believe God rewards those who earnestly seek Him. That is faith. 
But we need to be careful of rewriting God's Word. Be careful of proposing your own method for gaining the rewards of God. You know, don't be like Naaman. Well, I'm just going to go back to Damascus. There's some cleaner rivers there. I'll go, I'll go wash there. If you just want me to take, take a bath, well, I'll go take a bath back home. Hey, Naaman, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. You want a straight path? And you think you have a better way of gaining it than what the Lord has instructed? Really? Trust the Lord with all your heart, not three-fourths, not one half of your heart. Look, I know it's the fifth dip. It's boring, but the seventh dip is coming. Trusting, leaning not on your own understanding. Acknowledge Him, him in all you do. You know, sometimes it happens on Mondays. Mondays are kind of like the fifth dip a lot of times, aren't they? Show up on a Monday and somebody asks you, what would you do over the weekend? There's a chance to acknowledge him in all your ways. What did you do? I met with some of the people of God. I, I worshiped. I did this or that. Does that kind of become absent? Dips one through six. You got to take them if you want the seventh dip. Don't give up. Go all the way. Take the seventh dip. I want to share with you some significant if-then promises of the Bible that I, I really want each of us to be able to participate in. But you're going to have to act on the if part of it. You're going to have to be careful to learn your lesson from Naaman. You got to go through dips one through six before you get to the seventh dip. Here, here's one for you. First John 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, then He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You want the then part of it? You want to be forgiven? You want to be purified? You got to do the if part. You got to confess. You got to do dips one through six and then take the seventh dip. 1 John 5.14, this is the assurance we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to His will, then He hears us. He's not hearing you? Or did you do the if part? Or are you asking according to His will? One through six, then take the seventh dip. Romans 10.9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised, raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's a muddy river. You may think that there's better ways than this. But I'm telling you, take all that the Lord has instructed. Take all seven dips. Don't make up your own program. Don't leave some out because you think it's better. Do what the Lord says. Lean not on your own understanding. James 4.8, if you come near to God, then He will come near to you. You know, you might have another method in mind, but you need to take all seven dips. John 15.5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, then he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You know, if he asked something great of you to do, if he asked you to sell all your possessions and give them away to the poor so that you would bear much fruit, would you do it? You probably would. But then he asked this little thing, remain in me. 
Just remain in me. Do the little thing. Dips one through six. And then you can take that seventh dip. John 7, 17. If anyone chooses to do God's will, then he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Don't stop on number five. You might be going, man, five times and nothing has happened. Well, I'm just wasting my time. I've tried this. Don't stop on five. Take all the way. Take it all the way to the seventh dip. Matthew 6, 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, then your heavenly Father will also forgive you. You know, it's not the dramatic method maybe that you imagine. But go down. Go down in there. Take all seven dips. Take the seventh dip. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, then who can be against us? Wait a minute. Was there much required of me on the if part there? You just got to believe it. If God said it, believe it. Do it in faith and expect the reward. This is faith. This is what God rewards. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. If you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, in all your ways acknowledge Him, He will make your path straight. Take the seventh dip. These if-then statements, it's not a machine. It's not to put a coin in and get your candy out. This is if-then is based on relationship. It's based in knowing Him. He's always inviting us to know Him. Today, I want you to stand with me right now. You guys are going to come up and we're going to continue our worship. But when we worship, this is an expression of our faith. We, we are saying, God, we believe that You are there that you exist, that you are the eternal, immortal King, that by you everything and all things were made, and for your glory they are made, and by you all things hold together. And because of that, we're here today to honor you. And we're here on this day, on a Sunday, because once upon a time, on a Sunday, your son, you raised him from the dead. And he conquered death. And, he, and because of that, because of his dying on the cross and the conquering of the death, we can have relationship with you. We can not only have our past wiped out, our sins forgiven, we can be given eternal life. Two things done in one stroke at the cross. And He did it for us. That's what we're here for, to express our faith and our thanksgiving to Him. We're to do this in community. We're entering into it. We're going uh, to try to experience, encounter the presence of God together. We're here to do these things. And there's moments where we also respond to the Word of God. And there's moments where that happens outside and it needs to happen when we, uh, beyond this moment. And it needs to happen in our belief and it needs to happen in our actions. Today is one of those days where there needs to be something that happens outside of this room. You won't be able to take all seven dips right here in this place. There may not be someone holding your hand. You're going to have to believe His Word and act on it. I know some of us might be 
struggling. There might be some areas where we've been doubting God and we haven't been believing what He says and acting on it. This might be a time to say, God, I want that to change. I want to believe you. I want to take your word as a guarantee and act on it. And if that's the case, then I, I want to invite you just today, we printed up these little cards with, with those verses I used there at the last. Just a few of God's great and precious promises that he's given us so we can participate in the divine nature. Just a few of them. But just a few that maybe as a sample, just as a reminder, say, I am going to stand on your promises. So if that's the case, if you're needing to express something outwardly, not just inwardly today, I invite you while we're worshiping during this first song to come up and grab one of these cards. And if there's just a moment where you just need to say, God, I mean this. I mean this. Help me to walk by faith, not by sight. To not lean on my own understanding. If that's the case, then take care of business with him today. Do that, all right? Heavenly Father, in the next few moments, minister to us. Call us out. Lord, plant the seed of faith in us. May your word bloom within us. May we trust your word and know that it's guaranteed because you said it. In Jesus' name.